Good morning, Hillcrest Baptist Church. I just want to thank you again for your patience with me and with my family and allowing us the time away um, to be with family. Thank you for your prayers and your messages that have helped us in our, our time of grief. It is a joy to be back here t- today, and it's a joy to jump back into the gospel of John with you. So let's go to John chapter 20, and I'm going to read John 20 from verse 24 to 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Let's pray together. Lord, we gather together because we want life. We need you for that life. And so we pray that you will do a work today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would glorify Christ and help us in our doubts. We pray. Amen. I had started prep on this passage a few weeks ago, gearing up to preach on the topic of doubt when we got the call that caused the ground to give way beneath our feet. Your dad has had a heart attack. It's one of those life-changing calls, isn't it? And everything seems to have changed since then, except coming back this week, this passage was still there. It has waited for me and hunted me down. Over the last few weeks, doubts of various kinds have buffeted my heart and my soul. I said to Pastor Brahm this week, Brother, pray for me. I've got to go write a sermon on doubt when I'm assailed from all sides. And we all face doubts from time to time. We have doubts about God's provision sometimes, and doubts about His care over our lives. Sometimes we have doubts about our salvation or whether or not God truly loves us. Maybe even doubts about the existence of God. And we have these doubts for various reasons. Sometimes those doubts are caused by the deep disappointments we face. Life's deep hurts. Maybe you are there today. Life is hard at times. 
Maybe you feel beat down. Maybe you feel through constant hardship that you are being beaten down and it causes you to doubt whether God is good or even real. Sometimes we have single, life-changing crises. Your marriage breaks down or you lose your job or you lose someone that you love. Maybe you're looking around at the, the world and it's the state of the world that causes doubts. Wars, natural disasters, a global pandemic, just the suffering that people face. Some doubt is caused because of ignorance. You haven't gained enough knowledge yet, perhaps, or you haven't really been confronted with the hard questions of the faith and only beginning to experience that now. I've, I've worked with so many teenagers, and this is often the case, especially those who grow up in Christian homes. There has to come a time where you own your own faith. You can't ride the curtails of your parents' faith forever. I'm always amused by, by young people. Um, they have these questions and they are shocked by them as if their parents don't struggle or the, people, the older people in their church don't struggle. If that's you today, know that we do as well and bring your doubts, bring your questions. Maybe you have doubts because of what the Bible teaches. Maybe it's doubts about what it teaches about hell or about sexuality. Maybe you doubt because there's a conflict between what the Bible teaches and the way that you want to live your life. You know that if you believe, it's going to affect your life too much. No, you, you can't date him. Or no, you, you can't go there. Or yes, it's going to cost you that. I think I've shared before the, a quote by Aldous Huxley, who was a famous English writer and philosopher in the mid-20th century, he was just honest about what it was for him and his peers, his strong motivation for the meaningless of the universe. He had a strong motivation for a materialistic worldview. He said, if there's no God, there's no meaning, and I'm free morally to live the way that I want to live my life. Sometimes there's doubt in our lives because of sin. We make a big mess of things, or maybe there's a pattern of sin that you can't seem to overcome, and it causes you at times to even doubt your salvation, or doubt and wonder whether everything that you've believed is even true. Thomas's doubt is a great and profound doubt, a religious doubt, a life disappointment at this moment, before he meets again with Jesus, he believes that everything that he's poured his hope, invested his life into, is for naught. Poured everything into this person, into Jesus, and he's let me down. In the last passage that we looked at in the Gospel of John, we saw how Jesus appeared on that Sunday, the Sunday that he rose again. He appeared to the disciples he, he met with them in their midst behind locked doors. Thomas was not there. And we don't know why, but when they all tried to tell their friend, we've seen him. He's alive. He's appeared to us. He makes a strong statement here in verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails 
and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Yes, we all face doubts from time to time, but the question is, what do we do with our doubts? How do we deal with doubting? On the one hand, it's important as a church that we know this. We don't demonize the doubter. And the church can be prone to that. You know, don't voice what's in your heart in this place. Let that remain the skeleton in the closet of your faith. No, the the church community ought not be fearful of these things, but welcoming, ready to bear with one another, bear each other's burdens. Jude 22 says to have mercy on the one who doubts. And in the Gospels, including in our passage this morning, we see honest seekers who are struggling with great doubts and they come to Christ and what they meet is a compassionate and loving Savior. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not snuff out. The Gospels present a welcome. If you doubt, come to Christ. And we see it here for Thomas. We saw it even for John the Baptist. He was one of whom Christ said, There is no one greater. When he sees Jesus at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry in John 1.29, he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says of Jesus, He's one whom I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. But in Matthew 11, after he's thrown into prison, perhaps staring out of the bars of his cell, he sends words to Jesus, words of confusion. Are you the one? Or are we to look for another? How does Jesus respond to him? Not with a word of rebuke, but with a word of evidence. Go tell John everything you've seen me do. Throughout the gospel, doubters are met by the mercy of Christ. So we don't demonize the doubter. On the one hand. And yet, on the other hand, just because Jesus doesn't break bruised reeds doesn't mean that we need to remain professional bent reeds. Scripture doesn't demonize the doubter, but neither does it praise or prize doubt. And sometimes we see that in church culture as well. You know, look how genuine I am, how raw and real I am with all these doubts of mine. We offer listening ears as we should, but sometimes without any kind of life-giving challenge. We are called to help one another grow. And at times to call doubt what it is, unbelief. And I, I am preaching, I promise you, to myself. Christ's call to Thomas here is do not disbelieve, but believe. Questions in our our Christian walk are not bad. They cause us to dig deeper into our faith. But we are not meant to be constantly assailed by doubts, always questioning the existence of God and His goodness and love. The Bible calls us to something more. We're commanded to be strong and courageous. And we're meant to trust the promises of God. 
Paul's prayer for the Colossian church is that their hearts in chapter 2 may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we do rejoice that we are held even when we are weak. Our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is not in our own faith. It is in Christ. But a right emphasis on the strength of Jesus Christ is not an excuse for us to camp out in weak faith. We are called to grow. We are called to identify the patterns in our hearts that lead to doubt and to bring our doubts ruthlessly to a loving Savior, a strong Savior, So Thomas's story may be a story about doubt, but it is more a story about change. The doubter is made declarer of the truth about Jesus Christ. I personally am very grateful for Thomas. He does get a a bit of a hard rap going down in history as doubting Thomas, but his words spoken in, in bitter disappointment receive mercy the merciful attention of the Savior. And Christ appears to Thomas and draws from his lips the greatest confession, I believe, that we see in all the Gospels. And so John includes this encounter here, and he does so as a grace to you and to me, to any who are struggling with doubt. And as I unpack this encounter, I just want to highlight for us today three helps from this passage helps if you are doubting or struggling today. Number one, in verse 26, there is the help of community. The help of community. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So eight days, by the way that they counted days, would have taken them to the next Sunday. And they are gathered together again, the disciples, behind the locked doors. And yet again, that is no barrier for Christ as before. So he appears in their midst with a message of peace. But what's highlighted this time is that Thomas now is with them. He's still not believing. He's still doubting. But he is still with them. He hasn't disappeared. He hasn't gone to his hometown. He's still amongst his brothers. His place is still with them. And I think in this we see a little picture of the importance of Christian community, especially for those who doubt. If you're wrestling with doubt today, you may even, where you're sitting, feel like a hypocrite. You may feel like a hypocrite in this place, but you're welcome You are welcome here, and you are in good company, even in your doubts. We are called as the people of God to have patience and have compassion with one another. You know, the sign of Christian maturity is not always being shocked and put off by the struggles and the the failures of others. Shocked you would be at how patient Christ has been with you. Christian maturity is patience. It's making the Word of God your home, 
and being awed by the grace of God there so that you are ready to meet people with grace and with mercy and with patience. Is Hillcrest Baptist Church a place like that? What do we need to do to make it more a place like that? And if you are today struggling with doubt, Thomas's location in this passage is help number one for you. He has not cut himself off from the disciples, from those friends who are trying to tell him the truth. He stays with them. And if you are weak, you need the people of God. You need the community of the church. And it's important because your temptation in your times of doubt will be to hide, to cut yourself off. We all have struggles, and there are things as the people of God that we were never meant to navigate alone. We need community. Alexander McLaren in his commentary says, The worst that anyone can do when disbelief or doubt or coldness shrouds his sky and blots out the stars is to go away alone and shut himself up with his own morbid and disturbing thoughts. The best thing he can do is to go amongst his fellows. If the sermon doesn't help, well, the prayers and praises and fellowship of the brotherhood is sure to help him. It's what we do when we gather together. How great was it to stand and to hear the people around you singing the truths of Scripture? This was Asaph's experience. Seb mentioned him this morning and read from Psalm 77. Well, Psalm 73 is also about doubt. He should be called Doubting Asaph. But he's had doubts due to trials, due to the state of the world. He looks around and he sees the, the wicked flourishing and he, he says, I almost stumbled, I almost fell, and almost betrayed a generation of God's people. And it was only when he went into the sanctuary where he met with God in the place of worship and his perspective was reordered. Psalm 73, 25 and 26, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's why we gather together. We want to leave saying that, Jesus, you're enough. You are my strength and my portion. And we need one another. Church, I have been so grateful for the correspondence that I have had with you over the last few weeks. The messages that we've received in our grieving. And last Sunday, coming back to church, I will be honest with you, was a daunting task. Sunday morning came and I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to meet with the people of God, but I did anyway. And having been here, my spirits were lifted. We encourage one another. A few days after my dad died, I'd been in contact with Keith, and he sent me uh, the devotional that he and Barbara had been going through that morning, a word from J.I. Packer, and it spoke of how suffering exposes the shallowness of our faith so that we can grow. And Keith was saying, you know, you're struggling now, your faith is weak, one day it's going to be okay. And it, it wasn't meant as a rebuke, but it was exactly the gentle reminder that I needed at, at the time. 
It was a call to strength and faith from an older, experienced brother who's been through hard struggle and come out of it with the testimony of God's goodness still intact. We need each other. We need people like that pouring into our lives. Oh, that HBC would grow in this, in this balance of compassion and challenge, a balance of grace. We need community. Number two, there is in verse 27, the help of the scars. The help of the scars. What will Christ make of Thomas's pretty obstinate demand? His friends have come to him and said, we've seen the Lord. He showed us the scars. He's alive. And Thomas says, well, unless I see and feel for myself, I will never believe. What does Jesus do with that? Those are words spoken in deep hurt and spoken really without any hope that Jesus will ever hear them. They're uttered to the disciples, but in a way they're uttered as if to a wall. Have you experienced that, those moments in turmoil where in your heart, filled with doubts, you speak and you feel like you're praying to a wall? But Jesus hears. And his words to Thomas reveal that he heard what Thomas had said behind closed doors. He knows the state of Thomas's heart and faith as he knows the state of yours today. And he will minister to Thomas with this invitation in verse 27. He said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. How amazing is it that Christ acquiesces to Thomas's demands, his unbelieving request. Here I am, Thomas. Come to me with your doubts. Come to me with your disappointment. And we need to understand today that while God does not owe us any answers, he does not owe us a single thing, any answers to our questions or our doubts, it is wonderful that He welcomes us to come. He welcomes us with open arms to bring our cares to Him. He is patient with us and He delights in our bringing. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. William Bright was a history professor at Oxford in the 19th century, and he says this, How oft, O Lord, thy face hath shone on doubting souls whose wills were true. Thou Christ of Cephas and of John, thou art the Christ of Thomas too. We are not promised answers for all our questions, but we are given something better in this passage. A fundamental, unshakable, and ultimate help in our time of doubt. The scars of Jesus Christ. One scholar said that Jesus' scars are his credentials to suffering disciples here. Now, everything in this life that could cause you to question the love of God and the goodness of Christ, the faithfulness of our God, Anything that would cause you to question that finds its answer in the scars of Jesus Christ. 
We know that the road to endurance and the production of character and hope and being made in the image of Christ, which should be all of our hope, we know that that road is filled with testing, filled with suffering, and we're promised, actually, that those are the means that God uses. But still, when we walk the road and trouble comes, the question sometimes fills our hearts. I know that His promises are true, but does his promise apply even to me? There's an honest question we are confronted with often when we face as well the reality of our own sinfulness. How? How could I be loved and cared for? How could I be protected? How could I be owned to the Father's will and forgiven and assured of my salvation? It is into these doubts that the scars of Jesus must speak. Christ says, Isaiah 49, 15, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. They are His scars. They are proof of His victory over the grave. Here I am, Thomas. I'm alive. And they are proof as well of His love and His proximity to us in our trial. And they are proof forevermore. Revelation chapter 5, John sees Christ in heaven, the object of eternal glory and praise and the worship of heaven. And what he sees is the Lamb standing, standing in victory, and yet the Lamb looking as though it had been slain. Jesus' atoning wounds presented to Thomas are an essential part of his eternal glory. And so our praise is and ever will be worthy as the Lamb who was slain. And if the scars cause us never to forget the love of Christ, they must call us as well to patience and endurance in our trials. We should not be put off faith when trial comes. Suffering is not a sign of God's abandonment. Rather, we look in those times to the scars of Christ when trouble comes as proof of sovereign goodness, even during and despite our suffering. And the scars on this day were a call. They were a call to the disciples to follow, to expect trouble and hardship, to take up crosses. So we are not to be surprised when trouble comes. Jesus promised in this world you will have trouble. But he says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Those times where doubts assail us, they're times for coming back to the the scars of Jesus Christ, to open arms and nail-pierced hands, coming back to remember His love is a sure and steady foundation and to remember what matters most. Jesus, you are worth it even now. The scars are a help. Finally, number three, In verse 28 and 29, there's the help of declaration. The help of declaration. It doesn't appear that Thomas actually has to or needs to have his demands met. It doesn't say that he went and felt the scars of Jesus. I believe at this point he's on the ground. His objections crumble and he goes from doubter to declarer in a heartbeat. And verse 28 of John chapter 20, is one of the crucial verses in this book. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. 
Thomas, who is, is known as the doubter. But isn't it amazing in the Gospel of John how important Thomas's role is actually in establishing the truth about Jesus Christ? There are two of the most important statements in John's Gospel, and they come about partly because of Thomas. In chapter 14, do you remember where Jesus is saying to them, I go to prepare a place for you. And he says, and you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas puts up his hand. He's the kid in the class that you all love to have around when you were in school. Who would ask the question that everyone wants to ask, but is too afraid to ask. He says, we don't know where you're going. How could we know the way? Now the disciples, I'm sure, are nodding their heads quietly. And Jesus responds in this great statement, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We have that in part because of Thomas. And here again, we see Thomas's role to bring about this climactic declaration, I believe, of any person about Jesus in the entire gospel. This is the high point of Christological awareness in the gospels. Among the disciples, he says, you're my Lord and my God. This is the crowning display of what it means to know who Jesus is. And it's why John includes it here at the end of the gospel. See, there are some who say that Jesus never claimed to be God. There are some who say he was just a created being, just a good teacher or a prophet. He never made the claim that he was God. This passage is one of the clearest refuting verses of that silliness. Whether or not you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you have to do hermeneutical gymnastics in this passage to get away from Scripture's own witness and Jesus' own awareness of who He was as God. Thomas calls him Lord and God, and it is worship. And Jesus accepts that worship, and John commends it to you and me. He commends this confession and goes on directly to use it as, the, as an example for the very purpose of the book. We've looked before at the purpose statement of John's gospel. He tells us why he writes in verse 30 and 31 here. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John is giving us Thomas as an example. His confession is a model for our own. And Jesus actually anticipates you and me right here in verse 29. Did you notice that? Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That is you and me. Because you might be sitting here thinking, how great for Thomas. That he got to see Jesus and see the scars. I wish that Jesus would appear to me and show me the scars and put to bed my doubts and my fears. But Jesus says to us, yes, while you are not afforded, we are not afforded that same direct witness that would propel the disciples into mission. There is still available for you and me great blessing today. 
There is still life in his name, the life of never having seen with our eyes, but having known him through faith, having tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Is that true of you today? I've never seen him, but I know him. And I've tasted and seen that he is good. Ours is not a diminished faith. It's not a truncated joy. 1 Peter 1 verse 8 to 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The life that we live by faith. It's not a a blind faith. That's not what this passage is saying. There is still the trustworthy testimony of those who did see. That's what John is saying. We saw. And this is what we write. But the life that we have of faith is a life of seeking after Him with our whole hearts, and that life is met with the joy and the blessing of finding and knowing Him. We know Him, that He is true. And so what do we do with our doubt? In those dark days and nights of the soul, this passage calls us to come, to come to nail-scarred hands and a pierced side And declare with Thomas the truth that we know about him. As someone has said, don't forget in the dark what you learned in the light. And so when doubts assail, we come to Christ and we declare the truth. My Lord and my God. When tragedy befalls, we cry out, still you are God and Lord. And when we've fallen again, we come in repentance. You alone are my Lord and my God who saves me. When darkness surrounds, we listen to the truth. We speak the truth and we sing the truth. We come again with the attitude of that poor father who stumbled before Christ with weak faith. Faith small but faithful his child. If you can help me, if you can do something. And Christ says to him, if... Anything is possible for the one who believes. And he cries out, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. We come to deal with our doubts. It's not coddle my unbelief. It's not excuse my unbelief. It's my Lord and my God. Turn it into faith. Draw the truth from my lips as I approach your throne assailed. Turn my doubting into worship. Take from the word that you've planted in my heart. And draw forth again that declaration of trust in you. My father was not a a very artistic man. But he tried from time to time. He, He liked to paint from time to time. Or to make something out of clay. This is a little plate and you can see it's not not very well painted. But if you'll notice in the middle there. In all the, the works that he did. He had verses in Greek and in Hebrew. And if you're a scholar, you might recognize that. That's the first part of Philippians 1.21. My dad made this a few weeks ago. For to me to live is Christ. I wasn't able to be with my family when they got the call to go to the hospital. And my brother spoke of it 
afterwards, the horror of that moment, walking into the hospital room and seeing my father's body on the bed. He says in that moment, anger overtook him. And he says, I wanted to blame God. I wanted to hate God. And then immediately he said, that plate flashed in my mind. My dad's life goal ringing in his ears for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so he says, confessing anew what he had learnt in the light, bringing him back from that precipice. We sat on the second night that we were there, still in stunned silence around the dinner table, and my sister pulled out her phone and started playing the song, and she said, this, this song... When we got the call from the hospital, this is the song immediately that that filled my heart and has been in my heart since. And the song's name is The Goodness of Jesus. What is the state of your heart this morning as you sit here in the presence of God among the people of God? What are your doubts and your fears? Will you let the life that is on offer in Jesus Christ speak louder than your doubts? Will you let the life eternal on offer with Him override your disappointments? Can you see His scars and know now, even now, that He is good? When we got there to my family and people would ask how we're doing, there was just one thing I could keep saying. As I clung to faith, he is righteous and he is just and he never makes a mistake. He never does anything wrong. He is beautiful and true. He has never lied. He has never erred. He's never failed one of his own. He has never dealt inequitably with a single creature. Greg Morse writes on Doubt, he says this, survey the condemned in the deepest pits of hell, and no one will have any just complaint against him. Ask the martyrs in heaven, and none will think of anything but praise for him. Who can accuse him of wrong? His disciples couldn't. His enemies couldn't. Satan can't. His father didn't. But after all, heaven stands silent. Should the groans and complaints of professing Christians stand ready to accuse him? No. It is time you bring your doubts to the feet of Christ. And it's time to say, I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Jesus, again, as we gather together, We want to declare with all our hearts that you are good, that you are faithful, that you are true. You are Lord and you are God. We belong to you and you to us. And so we pray that you would help us to keep bringing our doubts and our struggles to you. We thank you for the example of Thomas, and for his great declaration. We pray that you would lift us up, people today who are hurting, that you would lift them up, I ask, Father. I pray that you would 
Help us as a church to lift one another up. Help us to be compassionate and patient and to love one another. And Father, I pray that you would equip us now to meet the challenges that we will face this week, knowing the firm foundation of your love, that you hold us fast, that you are good. Amen.